Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. Misinformation, Myanmar, and tech exceptionalism are just a few of the topics that we're going to traverse today on Tech Mirror with Alice Dawkins, the Executive Director of Reset Tech Australia. Alice, welcome to Tech Mirror. Thank you for having me, Joanna. Now, Alice, I think many of our listeners will be familiar with Reset, but perhaps could you tell us a little bit about your mission and how it's evolving? Reset Tech Australia is the Australian affiliate of an international effort to bring accountability and transparency measures to digital platforms and markets. Mm -hmm. In Australia, we've undergone some transformation. So previously, Reset was substantially a campaigning vehicle to bring public awareness to big tech regulation topics. And what we're doing this year is we're shaping our model into what is a highly rigorous, I hope, um, research-backed policy organisation. And that means that we run various technical investigations to produce that much-needed evidence base to assess the efficacy of things like platform regulation or platform self-regulation in Australia. You've also had a really interesting career path into tech policy, including work that you did when you were in um, Myanmar and also in China. The work that you did in those contexts wasn't necessarily what we would um, strictly call tech policy, but it did sort of help lead you onto your path of digital advocacy. So I started going in and out of Myanmar for language training about 10 years ago. And so I had a few longer stints there where I was working on the edges of the pro-democracy movement, which was obviously entering quite an exciting time, say 2015, 2016. And I was working specifically with public interest, local lawyers, and we were working on sort of law and society dimensions with with a consideration of pro-democracy political organisations. The most intense bit of my research period was 2016 and 2017. Eager listeners will realise that uh, these dates are quite significant in recent history when you think of events like the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal and the related issues of how data was used in political processes. I was living with local lawyers, which meant also living with them online. So I was seeing the communities they formed on Facebook. I was also absorbing the news and content that they consumed. Um, It was a sort of a very, very basic digital ethnography. And so when I look back on that period, I realize now that I was in a kind of a Forrest Gump fashion. I was (laughs) witnessing the rollout of what we now know was a hunter-backed information war that was played out on Facebook. And so then the horrific violence in Myanmar that hit a climax in 2017 and and then just kept rolling on in various dimensions was perhaps just the beginning of a a brutal tech-enabled attack on a legitimately elected democratic government. One of the pieces of work that you've done recently is around young people and privacy online in Australia Could you tell us a little bit about why you chose to do that as one of your first pieces of research as a new CEO? This has been a kind of a multi-year effort to centre youth perspectives in digital regulation topics. Mm -hmm. And the rationale is it's young people who are very much at ground zero for under-regulated digital markets. I mean, 
think Joanna, you and I remember a time before data hungry businesses. Before the internet, <laughs> heaven forbid. <laughs> And the young people in this study obviously don't. Um, and if you look at it from the sort of commercial point of view, hundreds, if not thousands of companies have formed intensely clear profiles on them from a very young age. And there's a lot of implications that flow from that. And so I suppose it's one thing to imagine that adults can make informed choices for themselves. It's not fair to impose that expectation on young people. We, we need legislation to set a floor. It's a very clear example where that, that floor needs to come in. And the, the major takeaway from our research, which involved a lot of workshops and polling and those kind of methods, found that young people really desire government to come in and set that floor. One of the really common things that I hear when people are talking about young people and the internet is, oh, they don't care about privacy. Um, they have different different views and different perspectives. And I really, I always try and push back on that because actually most of the young people that I know, and I'd like to think I'm still a young person, but maybe that's not the truth we, anymore. We are young people, yes. Joanna. We're young at heart. <laughs> so uh, what I really liked about this piece of work is that you're highlighting the fact that, um, and, and the age group that you were looking at, uh, it was up to 18, wasn't it? The the time, for, uh, the age frame you were you're looking at and saying that they have a really nuanced perspective of privacy but that they, and they want to have privacy, but they have this sense of pessimism that they actually can enforce that right. Mm-hmm. One of the conclusions in the report is um, a comment from Reset saying, you know, this is something that should really give us pause for thought that, you know, we are responsible for having created the world in which these young people are now engaging with uh, digital platforms. And they feel like they are unable to have that sense of control. Mm. And you maybe speak a little bit more to that point. It's one of those moments in time where there's a burden and a very clear social and moral imperative to act. Um, mm. You know, there's people like to draw analogies between tech accountability and the climate movement, and that's always a it's messy terrain to enter. But I, I do think there's similarities here between the obligation on present day policymakers to listen to young people and mm. the, the coal face that they're at um, because they're experiencing the very uneven and unfair risks of the digital world in real time. Um, they're experiencing it in their schools. They, we've got kids getting location tracked when they're at school mm. and then that data segment is sold to dozens of other providers who for some reason want to know when a kid is locationally present at their high school. Like, (laughs) you know, that's just one example of, I I think, evidence of a a highly extractive industry that absolutely needs to be cracked open more. And it's also an industry where there is really strong support for greater regulation. You you mentioned before that that, um, the young people, the children, young adults actually they're they're asking for the government to take steps in this the office of the australian information commissioner just uh, this week has put out their annual privacy report Mm -hmm. and their figures are also extraordinarily high it's rare to have such high figures saying that you know 90 percent of parents place privacy of their children as something of really high importance 
Um, they've got this great discomfort around children's privacy, particularly, interestingly, there's the echo around location data. And and, and 90% of parents are saying, you know, we're concerned about this. We want our children to be able to grow up without being profiled and targeted. And it's actually rare in today's polarised environment to have those types of figures. And so I think it really reinforces your, your call to action in that space. Just on that point, really quickly, Joanna, we have polling coming out soon, which is, we polled adults and um, on issues around targeted advertising, which is obviously quite timely considering the, the ongoing Privacy Act review debate. And we have exactly the same figures. So we have 90% would prefer less information about them as collected for advertising purposes. We have 87% would prefer ads don't target them based on sensitive personal information. So this is obviously there's a groundswell of public support for the direction that the review will take. Um, it's And we're trying to um, spotlight that public support as much as we can because it's a conversation for another time. But if you look at that case study of the targeted advertising policy debate, we are seeing um, a highly organised campaign across a whole range of industries that rely on, on data businesses resisting the direction that the department's proposing. So I think that's definitely a a watch that space. It'll be a really interesting uh, case study for for how these digital policy tussles uh, turn out. Yeah, absolutely, because it is one of the recommendations uh, in the privacy review is is to take action around targeted advertising. So we're all watching and waiting uh, with much anticipation for the government's response to the privacy reform review. Well, let's pivot now and talk a little bit about another piece of work that Reset Tech is doing. And I think this just gives listeners a really good idea of the breadth of issues that uh, Reset Tech Australia is focused on. Can you tell us a little bit about the project you're running around Mm. the voice referendum and the the campaign of platform monitoring and analysis that you have? Yeah, absolutely. And and I... It's nice to hear that the breadth of our issues is recognised because I I find it... um, it requires a lot of intellectual and programmatic elasticity. <laughs> so one day we're thinking about privacy and one day we're thinking about sort of information distortion and campaigns. And of course, these are interconnected issues, um, but they're certainly different um, analytical hats you need to wear. Mm. Um, so what we're doing around the referendum is we are systematically analysing social media activity and we're looking specifically for distortions in the public debate. And how I like to explain this is when you look at information issues, there are metrics around actors, there are metrics around behaviours, there's metrics around content, and there's metrics around distribution. And so our key focus is um, where content will inform our analysis. We are particularly looking at actors' behaviours and distribution. And so that means things like suspiciously high amplification metrics, the rapid movement of narratives across platforms, Mm -hmm. particularly where those narratives are somewhat misleading in nature or connected to some other sort of coordinated campaign. It's not a content-based fact-checking exercise or a narrative analysis. And, and this is, I think, quite an interesting point because mis- and disinformation are, they've become quite capacious terms that mean very different things to different people and mm. organisations. 
Um, so what we're doing here, of course, we're interpreting content, but we are doing so within this, it's called an ABCD framework or ABC, if you take distribution out. And the purpose of this is to effectively check digital platforms homework in the absence of robust regulation into their systems and processes. So we're evaluating if that, um, if their T's and C's are applied consistently and effectively. I know you haven't necessarily published the results of your your findings on this yet, but are you able to share some of the early patterns you're seeing in this? We're seeing quite low rates on content moderation response, mm-hmm. which you, you would expect. Um, it is, I mean, sort of action and takedown for electoral misinformation, mm. which is a very, I would argue quite a clear cut example of misinformation where there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray, especially in the voice referendum, electoral misinformation, which is about the electoral process and the integrity of the ballot and those sort of issues. That is, I would say, a much more objective analysis than some of these other issues. So we flagged, we flagged content across three platforms and um, we are currently observing what the takedown rates are and it is I, I am anticipating a single digit percentage there wow. which um, I think is interesting and, and that's um you know we, we can go we can go into the weeds of what we should be expecting there and all of that but I, I guess my major point is the the role that a civil society actor such as reset plays in this I think is refining into moving from the public case for change activity into going really deep into platform activity, generating empirical conclusions and taking those to government and to regulators and just asking the question, like, are you you satisfied with this? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the questions that I would like to see asked and answered a little bit more loudly is this whole question around electoral processes and the carve-outs for truth in uh, uh, electoral process advertising or, or political advertising. Mm. So in Australia, for example, there is no requirement that political ads contain the truth. And, you know, historically, there are good reasons for this in the sense that during an election campaign, during a referendum, it's really a contest of ideas, right? And we want people to have the freedom of expression and to be able to express their views as robustly as they can. But I think we're now getting to a point where, you know, there is a big difference between a campaign based on ideas and a campaign that is based on lies. And, you know, I think we are sophisticated enough as a society to be able to to craft regulations mm. that allow us to have that um, point of difference. But it's not something that we have done in Australia uh, and I, I think that's often a really missed part of uh, the conversation when we're talking about misinformation, disinformation, for example, and um, and the new uh, proposed um, draft that's on the table um, that that has been released um, just a month ago. Um, it has a carve out for for electoral advertising, and yet when we're talking about misinformation and disinformation during electoral during campaigns, electoral campaigns, you know, this is the time when we most focus, or often we're most focused. Uh, rightly or wrongly, on the issue. So maybe let's let's chat a little bit about um, about the um, proposal that's yeah. on the table because it is very much linked to the work that you're doing uh, uh, in terms of um, the the voice uh, referendum and the work you're doing with the platforms. In the context of this uh, new proposal that's on the table, draft pre- legislation and public consultation, there's mm-hmm. a new framework that's been put forward by the Australian Communications and Media Authority (ACMA) 
to hold digital platforms account for harmful misinformation and disinformation online. And I think one of the things that Reset has very clearly been a a critic on in this space is what you refer to as the flawed era of self and co-regulation in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about why you have such concerns about that kind of regulatory approach? Um, I mean, Joanna, we've had conversations in the past where we've sort of discussed how a lot of the tech policy expertise in this country comes via national security and it also comes via telco. And that, I think, creates some some really interesting outcomes. And we might be looking at one of those interesting outcomes with this exposure mm-hmm. draft. Let me just talk about the co-regulation issue and how that manifests in a bill like this. So we know that large digital platforms are pretty unpopular with Australians. And we know from the targeted advertising example that they, they want to see more regulation. So, so that point, I think, has been made and, and pretty conclusively. But Australians also tend to resist government when it takes an interest in content problems or when it's deemed to take an interest in content problems. And in my view, co-regulation tends to combine the worst of both worlds. And what I mean by that is that you have industry holding the pen on drafting the rules in a manner that is obviously advantageous. You have civil society and researchers only able to shape, say, the final 10 to 20% of that regulatory framework. And then you have what is by necessity a long and complex consultation process that manages to burden all stakeholders um, through through all the stages. And that's, that's just a fact of how these things work. And so the idea seems to be that uh, tech and internet co-regulation is going to be rolled out from our existing online safety co-regulatory model. It'll turn into um, co-regulation over content and distribution issues, which is this bill. We're also seeing signs of it with privacy and data protection issues, and we're hearing murmurs of it with AI issues as well. I suppose I have two points here that I think is really worth considering. <laughs> the first is this exceptionalism point that, that we make from time to time, which is that we don't let banks write their own rules. We don't let pharmaceuticals draw up their own safety metrics. But we have somehow convinced ourselves that there should be lighter treatment on internet industries. The second point is that if you look at the pace of change elsewhere, we have democratic oversight happening all over the world onto large digital platforms, including our close allies. And perhaps my concern is that we're rapidly becoming an outlier in the name of maybe a too cute co-regulatory solve. So look, I I think um, Ed Husick also made this point earlier this week when uh, he came out and said that he thinks that the era of self-regulation is over. And it was interesting to me that he prefaced that by saying the era of self-regulation is over in the context of high-risk elements of future artificial intelligence. And that's really in the context of a discussion draft that's on the table where they're dividing different types of uses of artificial intelligence and the way that they're defining high risk is something where its impacts are systemic, irreversible or perpetual, that he thinks that the era of self-regulation is over. So I wonder, mm. I mean, you're talking about co-regulation, which is a, is a different thing, but what, how you respond to that comment from our Minister for Industry? I'm delighted to hear that we're aligned in some respects with the industry. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I, I suppose one thing here, which is there's a narrative in the mis- and disinformation policy space, which is that 
oh, well, the Europeans jumped into aggressive regulation and we shouldn't do that. We should take a graduated approach. I would say that that's quite a misreading of what the Europeans did there. So Europe developed a set of voluntary measures, Mm -hmm. which was that was that voluntary code on disinformation, largely authored alongside the tech industry. And these were enforced for a number of years before it became very clear that they didn't work. And that was, you know, due to some really sustained efforts from researchers in civil society. And so I think it was from a pretty robust effort examining the flaws of that voluntary code that Europe moves towards the Digital Services Act, which is a comprehensive, uh, regulated, drafted frameworks. So what we're seeing in Australia, Australia is where Europe was in 2017. And Australia is hoping that platforms will somehow behave better in a medium-sized market than in one of the world's largest trading blocks. And I will pause there. <laughs> so, you can just add we, the dot, dot, dot. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. A lot of this comes down to questioning and and a constant question about the regulator's capacity to actually be able to do direct regulation in this sense. And part of that, I think, comes back to what you were talking about before, about the, the narrative around tech exceptionalism and the fact that the tech sector is different and that there is a reason why we need to regulate it differently. The origin of that myth is is long and uh, and has been around for quite some time. But do you think it serves a particular purpose having that narrative around tech exceptionalism? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the greatest PR achievements of our time. <laughs> so, <laughs> as much as it frustrates me, I've got to kind of respect the hustle here. Um, <laughs> I like so, it. So, I guess my earlier point which was about if you look to other sectors, you start to see where the unevenness lies, which is um, where we wouldn't, we wouldn't expect, nor would we necessarily trust um, banks or pharma to, to hold the pen on, on writing the rules to enforce themselves and then to sort of enter this kind of uh, at times delicate dance with mm-hmm. the regulator um, on, on what happens next. And so I think the purpose that that serves is that digital platforms are permitted to check their own homework. And one very concrete way that you can insert accountability and transparency measures into the current arrangement is through platform data access for researchers and civil society. So that's what Again, I'm sorry, I feel so Eurocentric saying this and I spent most of my career mm. <laughs> resisting Eurocentrism, but this is like Article 40 of the Digital Services Act, right, which provides a framework for this sharing of platform data. And it's a, this is kind of a very nerdy point and um, we, we've probably got to work on the messaging here so that it, it sounds a little sexier. But what it means is that you're providing 
or independent external oversight so that researchers and civil society experts can look under the hood and see, in this case of missing disinformation, see what the distribution is doing, look for those irregularities. And, and as you say, Joanna, it's a very tall order for a regulator who has been a content and broadcasting regulator for, for time immemorial to start thinking through these questions. And our answer to that would be, like, no one's expecting overnight expertise here. I mean, what Reset does in Europe is works with the European Commission to think through, for instance, what those risk mitigation frameworks could and should be, test them out with the best in the field. And, you know, for, for sort of policy and regulatory people like us, Joanna, I think it is an exciting time to think through how regulators can work with researchers, work with civil society and everyone in between to think through how to get the best policy outcome here. Like it, it's, it's no longer, I would argue, it's no longer this sort of adversarial situation where, um, where we've got civil society sort of shouting at industry and, and making these broad and vague points. It's a, I think of, we're entering a very sensible and pragmatic time where we, we've kind of got to think about the best way through this, where there's proper independent oversight where accountability and transparency is delivered. Um, and as I would say, there's, we have tech exceptionalism on one side. The opposite of that is regulatory inevitability. <laughs> and I think that's where we are. <laughs> so maybe, Alice, if we can have your reflections on what it's been like to enter into working on tech policy issues um, from a civil society organisation perspective uh, in in Australia, and and how how robust do you think that the civil society organisations are in this field in Australia, and and perhaps where are some of the areas where you think there is real potential for for more cooperation in this in this field? Oh, I mean, we've got really smart people in top organizations doing brilliant yeah. work, right? Like you, you, you and I saw this at um, that fabulous Tech Policy Futures event that you put on earlier this year, Joanna. I would observe that there's not, there's not just one tech policy civil society ecosystem. Mm. We're seeing activity distributed uh, across organizations styled in a range of ways. So we have, we have the privacy and digital rights movement. We have also organizations bolting on tech and digital to their repertoire. And I think the consumer groups are doing yes. really, really excellent cool work there. Yeah. And then we have, I mean, even looking over to a domain I used to spend a bit more time in where, where Aspie sits, they're thinking about mm -hmm. these researcher access to platform data issues and Reset sits in civil society in a, a bit of a unique way. Um, our through line is tech accountability. Mm. And so that means that we find ourselves partnering with all sorts of friends and allies. And I, I find that work really fun because <laughs> it means that one day we'll be talking to Australia's highly sophisticated um, human rights civil society sector. Another day we're talking about um, very kind of technical data protection issues. Another day we're talking with consumer groups. It, it definitely, it keeps you sharp. <laughs> it, keeps, <laughs> it also keeps you very humble because you're never, um, I'd say that we're rarely the domain expert in any room that we're in, which um, 
I mean, I think is, I think is actually quite a productive thing at times. So it really just proves um, my hypothesis that this issue of tech accountability is everywhere. And I mean, I see our role as, as showing up in kind of additive ways to support, to support work that's being done on very enduring issues. I think a campaign that could unite a lot of research organisations in Australia is over legislated access to platform data. So we're seeing quite a, a chilling situation unfold with Twitter or, or X, uh, whatever yes. you want to call it. I love when they rename themselves. It's so cute. Um, so you'd be following that closely, I'm sure, Joanna, but where not only is it, it's become basically impossible for organisations to run effective monitoring projects, but now they're facing unprecedented legal risk. And so um, mm. the case there is that the legal threats issued against the, the Center for Countering Digital Hate in the UK, um, which uh, is obviously just a very, it's a very concerning trend. Um, and so I suppose on, on Twitter or X or, or other large platforms and our hopes that they do the right thing, a line that I think about a lot is that corporate goodwill is not a strategy. and I don't think we'll be putting ourselves into a good place if we are sitting in wait and in hope of that sort of outcome. So that is why legislative requirements for data access from these platforms, I think is key. Again, to look to how we saw Europe move from voluntary schemes to comprehensive schemes, mm. there was a really fascinating activation of researchers in civil society who who organised on this issue of mandated platform data access for accredited researchers and organisations. Um, maybe that's something that's so wonky and abstract you can only pull it off in Europe, but I do have a lot of faith. I don't think so. Australia. I reckon we can do it here as well. I think it's a good it's a good challenge, isn't it? I'm sure we can. And I actually don't, I don't think it's that wonky. I mean, I think this is about the, the platforms that we all use every day and it's extraordinary that we actually don't know more about the platforms that we use, don't know how they work, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's something that also the general population would would have a lot of interest in as well. So let's keep chatting about this one, Alice. I'm, I'm keen yeah. to, to see what we can do. Um, I'd, I'd say it's even worse than that. It's not just that we, we can't, I mean, to, to draw an analogy, it's, it's not that we can't get under the bonnet of the cars. It's not that we can't easily get into, say, food production to assess product safety. It's that if you try, you're going to face, you know, a massive legal action based on the last few weeks. And, so we, we've moved from it being a, let's say, a challenging environment for independent access to under-the-hood market dynamics to uh, just an incredibly hostile situation. Mm. And mm. so I, I agree. It's, it's absolutely, I think, I think the case for change here is quite right. Yeah. And I mean, my hope is that, that other platforms look at what X is doing in the Centre for online digital hate and uh, use that as a response and say, look, okay, we're going to do the right thing because it is, it is quite extraordinary what is, what is happening in that particular case. So, you know, maybe that's the optimist in me, but, um, but I'm hopeful because I, I, you know, there are, there are platforms that I know that are looking at these issues and saying, how can we do this usefully? We've seen at least one study come out of uh, the US this last week, which was talking about access to data. Of course, it's not enough and we need to have more. And I think that's why the campaign you've identified, as you say, is very ripe. 
The question that we ask everyone to finish up with is um, what do you use to keep up to date in this space? Given our conversation about Twitter, I'm assuming it's not Twitter um, or X, sorry. And so what resources do you recommend uh, for our listeners? I will say when I first got into this space, Twitter was the most helpful resource because what I what I did is I went to the accounts of people I admired intellectually and then followed the same accounts that they did and then became absorbed in in their feeds and and just ate everything up and that was it's a shame because I when I'm when I'm giving advice on what to go out and read and what conversations to follow I, I can't really give that anymore because it's, it's nowhere near as effective so what we've seen since then is a proliferation of newsletters and, and various periodicals so um the I'm not sure if anyone said this one before, Joanna, but John Norton's blog is uh-huh. such a hit. Yeah, you, you got that one. <laughs> you had it here first. So John Norton, for those who, who have not followed his work, he is a an Irish tech policy writer who uh, comes from initially the tech side, wrote some fascinating books on the internet um, some years ago, mm-hmm. and it has a weekly column in the UK. And why I mentioned John is John was the first person who could outline in just a very clear way the issue we were facing with um, the sort of simultaneous dynamic of a, a shrinking state with various capacity issues with state institutions and democracy and a rising tech sector with with various claims to an, to efficiency and innovation, so I'll, I'll kind of I don't want to spoil that because uh, I would say go and have a look at everything John Norton's ever written. So that would be the first from from a uh, a bit of an intellectual perspective. One of the magazines I'm most excited about is Logics, which is on the critical side. It's so important to have a regular diet of the critical technology studies space. Um, that's sort of where I first started reading, and I I like to keep as up to date on those issues as possible, especially now that I work in a domain where we are sort of edging closer to power and to making those points to the pointy end. And um, yeah, that's probably enough for now. That's great, and it's wonderful to have uh, to have a couple of new recommendations uh, in there as well, and. Definitely a common theme of the recent months uh, has been bringing back the newsletter. So um, yeah. I, I'm, I certainly have reinvested in newsletters in a way that I haven't since the late 1990s. So <laughs> there we go. Um, thank you so much for the conversation today, Alice, um, and looking forward to doing uh, more work with you and Reset Tech Australia um, as, as both of our organisations um, transition, morph and evolve. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. Get involved.